At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. It is great that we have an opportunity to gather and to talk about the new normal. And again, as we have talked about throughout this series, when we talk about the new normal in Galatians chapters 1 and 2, we're not talking about something unique to 2021, but we're talking about the new that Jesus normalized. When Jesus came into the world and offered his life on the cross for a sacrifice for our sins, and when he was resurrected from the dead, he ushered in not an old religion, but a new covenant, a new arrangement, a new normal by which you and I might connect to the God who created us. And that way would be through his way, through his life and death and resurrection. He is our hope. He is our truth. He is our way. He is our life. And we have been seeing how that is delivered to us and explained and and argued for in the early church as Paul writes a letter to a number of congregations in the region of Galatia. We're going to continue that today by looking at Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But before we look at those verses together, I want to set us up so that we might get the most out of our reading of Galatians 2, 1 through 10 by talking about something that you and I probably can relate to. Now, something that you and I can relate to is, how do we know when we are to stand and when we are to sit? Now, when I say that in a church context, some of you are thinking, well, we stand during the singing and we sit during the talking, right? I'm not talking about that kind of standing and sitting. I'm talking about how do we know when to take a stand, to be firm in our conviction? And how do we know when we are to compromise? Now, I realize whenever I I say that word compromise, some of you just shuddered a little bit because it's 2021 and we have come to think that the whole concept of compromise is actually something that is antithetical to the gospel, that is antithetical to the Bible, that is antithetical to the ways of God. But when I read my New Testament, when you read your New Testament, I think what we see is that compromise is, in fact, a part of our ethic a part of the way that we relate to one another. Certainly that we have convictions, that we stand firm in areas where we need to stand firm, but also that we have moments of compromise when we step away from our liberty in order to serve a greater purpose. This morning, we're going to look at Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, as Paul shares with us some thoughts about when to stand and when to sit, about when to stand firm in our conviction and when to sit and compromise. We're going to look at that today in these verses. And so, without further ado, I want to read for us Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And after I read those verses, we're going to go back and make three observations that will help us to understand this concept and apply it to our lives. Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul continues writing and says this, After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation, and I set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers, secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery... To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, 
so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that we were eager to do. Now, friends, in those 10 verses, we're going to see three things today. What are those three things? The first thing we're going to see is this. It's really a question. Does your understanding stand up? Does your understanding stand up? In other words, if you have come to a new understanding, if you have come to a resolute conviction, does that understanding, does that conviction stand up to cross-examination from the Scriptures? Well, we see that modeled for us in the life of Paul in the events of Galatians 2. Now, in order for us to accurately understand it, we again need to place it inside of its context, something we've been doing as we've studied this letter all along. At the beginning of Paul's letter to the Galatians, he wants to make absolute sure that the Galatians understood that Paul's ministry and his message were not originated out of himself. In other words, Paul did not determine that he was to be an apostle. He didn't make that his life goal. Paul was declared to be an apostle by Jesus Christ. And Paul's message that he proclaimed was not something that he thought up on his own, but something that Jesus had revealed to him and had given to him. Now, he makes both of those very clear in chapter 1, as we've seen over the last three Sundays. In chapter 1, verse 1, he says he's an apostle not from man or through men, but through Jesus Christ. It was Jesus himself who appointed Paul to his task. Paul says, I w- there was no lower-level appointment. All the way at the top, Jesus invited me onto the team. And then, not only that, but his message was also something that came straight from Jesus Christ. And he lets us know the contents of that message in verses 3 and 4 when he says that it's about Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Salvation is by Jesus alone. He is the way, not a way. It's not Jesus plus something else. It is Jesus and Jesus only that is the hope of our salvation. And Paul says, I got that idea not by thinking about it. I got that idea because Jesus revealed it to me. And so the authority goes all the way to the top. And because this message came from Christ, Paul would go on to say, and so no one should ever change it. Now, this is how he begins that letter. But last week, we saw how Jesus actually delivered that message to Paul. And we saw that as Paul recounted a section of his personal story. We saw how Paul was converted all the way back here, and for the first 10 years of his life, from the time of his conversion on the road to Damascus until his time completed living in the city of Tarsus, a period of about 10 years, Paul did not go and interact with the disciples in Jerusalem to get his theology. But instead, Jesus revealed it to him through his personal study, I believe, of the Old Testament Scriptures, as well as his inspiration through the Holy Spirit. Those two things allowed Paul to form his theology over a 10-year period of time, independent of what was being taught by the disciples in Jerusalem. 
Well, if that was the first 10 years of Paul's Christian life, when we get to Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we now advance four more years to these events that happened 14 years, Galatians 2 would tell us, after Paul's conversion, when he goes up to Jerusalem. Now, what were the events or the event that prompted Paul, and in this case, Paul and Barnabas and Titus, to go up to Jerusalem? They were all ministering in the city of Antioch in Syria. What, what prompted them to leave Antioch and to go to Jerusalem in order to minister? Well, Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30 lets us know. Again, the events of the book of Acts run parallel to Paul's description of his life in Galatians 1 and 2. And so in Galatians, or in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 30, we find the event that prompted their visit. And that event was there was a prophet who was living in Jerusalem who went to Antioch. And when he got there, he was a man by the name of Agabus. He gives a prophecy. And his prophecy goes like this, a big famine is coming that is going to disproportionately affect the Christians who live in Judea, specifically in the area around Jerusalem. And so he says, I want you to know this is what is coming. Upon hearing this message, the Christian church, primarily made up of Gentiles in the city of Antioch, talk about what they're going to do in response to that prophecy. And what they decided to do was to take up an offering and to appoint Paul and Barnabas to take that offering to Jerusalem and to give it to be a blessing to the Christians in that city. That visit that is talked about in Acts 11, verses 27 through 30, is what I believe is described in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And so we see the description that Paul says of him or his arrival. He says, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation. What revelation? The prophecy that came from Agabus. Who went? Barnabas and Paul. That's what Acts 11 tells us. But in Galatians chapter 2, we find out that it wasn't just Barnabas and Paul, but they took along with them Titus also. Now, who was Titus? Titus was uh, this guy that was a leader in the early church. He was from a Gentile background. He was not Jewish. He became such a prominent leader in the early church that eventually Paul would write him a letter that would be included in our Bible, the letter of Titus. And so Titus is this Gentile convert believer who goes with Barnabas and Paul to Jerusalem to deliver this offering to alleviate the suffering that had come about because of the famine. Now, why did they bring Barnabas, or I'm sorry, why did they bring Titus along? And specifically, what else did Paul accomplish in this trip besides just showing up and making a visit? Well, it seems that Paul took the opportunity of this trip to test the theology that he had learned and was teaching, to share his gospel message that God had developed now over 14 years of life and that Paul had preached among the Gentiles, for Paul to finally come and to present that clearly before the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, that the other apostles could look at it and provide feedback on it and say whether or not they believed it to be accurate. Now, not only was Paul going to do that by talking about his theology, but he brings Titus along just to see how they respond, right? Titus shows up uncircumcised. 
Paul wanted to know not just what do they believe or what doctrinal statement will they sign off on, but how will they actually behave regarding my Gentile friends who are coming to faith? Will they somehow require Titus to be circumcised? Paul's like, I want to know, and I want to know now. So he goes down to deliver the offering. He brings with him Titus and Barnabas, and they show up in the city. Well, how did Peter and James and John, the pillars of the early church, the the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, two of those were original disciples, the other was the the brother, the half-brother of Jesus. How did they respond? Well, we find out in Galatians 2, verse 9. It says, when James and Cephas, that's another word for Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. And from those who seemed influential, they added nothing to me. In other words, when Paul laid out the message and when he talked to him about Titus and when Titus told his personal story and shared his testimony and said, I didn't become a Jew, but the Holy Spirit came upon me on the moment of my belief, and they went on and on and on, Paul and, or, or Peter and James and John stick out their hand and say, brothers, welcome. You are accepted. What you're saying is consistent with what we're saying. Though it had developed through these independent timelines, it is the exact same message because it came from the exact same source. Again, the, the apostles had learned their message from Jesus himself during three years of life and ministry. And Paul had learned his message through revelation from Jesus himself, so it shouldn't surprise us. It certainly didn't surprise Paul, but we see it recorded in history that the message they were proclaiming was the same message. And not only the message, but the practice of that message held up under scrutiny. Now, friends, if this is the case for Paul, how does that connect to us? In other words, if the Apostle Paul who had a number of things going for him, right? I mean, let's just recount them. Paul had an impeccable education in the Old Testament, had gone to the best seminary. And then Paul had seen Jesus while he was walking on the road to Damascus and was called to faith by Jesus himself. I don't know who led you to the Lord. In in human means, Paul had Jesus himself lead him to the Lord. And then Paul had spent this time and and energy and study, and the the Spirit of God revealed things so plainly and clearly to Paul that that revelation would ultimately be recorded in Scripture. None of us in this room have written or will write Scripture, right? So Paul had a number of things going for him, and yet Paul still took his teaching and his revelation and his understanding and put it against the revelation of the other apostles to see if it stood up because he did not want to run in vain. If the Apostle Paul is willing to be humble to take his understanding and put it against the teaching of Scripture, should we not be willing to do the same? I mean, if we have some novel idea, if we have some new conviction, if we have some added understanding about whatever issue in life, should we not be willing to take our understanding and examine it against the teaching of the apostles in Scripture? Now, for Paul, he had to go to Jerusalem to do that because Galatians, actually the letter of Galatians may very well be the first or one of the first parts of the New Testament that were ever written very early in history that this book was written. In order for him to compare it, he had to go talk to the actual apostles in Jerusalem. But for us, the ideas and the understandings that we have, we're able to take them to the book 
We're able to compare them to the apostles' teaching so that we can see if our understanding stands up under cross-examination from the Scriptures. And this is important for each of us to remember because in, in our lives today, there are some new understandings about sexuality and gender. There are new understandings about what justice is all about. There are, are new understandings about a number of different ways in which people think that life should go. And, and when we come up with these new understandings, will we have the courage to do what Paul did? To take our understanding and compare it to the teaching of the apostles to see if it stands up. If it does, then we are not running in vain. And it's an understanding, it's a conviction that we should keep. But if the Scripture teaches otherwise, and I don't mean just a verse, but I mean the the teaching of Scripture, the, the, the breadth of Scripture, then, friends, we should amend our perspective to come in line with the Scripture and not twist the Scripture to come in line with our perspective. Now, how do we do that? Well, you might be like, I, I've got this understanding. I've got this conviction. How do I know where to start? How do I know where to look? Well, it could start with a, with a Google search, but that can be dangerous at times. Talk to somebody that knows the Scripture. Say, this is what I'm thinking about issues of gender and sexuality. This is what I'm thinking about issues of justice. This is what I'm thinking about a, an understanding of economics. This is what I'm thinking about. What does the Scripture say about those things? Ask someone who knows the Scripture, and they can help point you in some directions. And then don't just take their word for it, but open the Scripture and read the verses and see what it has to say. There have also been so many great books written, commentaries that have been written to help us, aid us in our understanding. But friends, are we willing to do what Paul did to take our understanding and see if it stands up? We're going to talk about these issues, the first thing we need to do is make sure that our understanding is in line with God's Word. Second thing, though, that we need to see is really the question that I began with. Do you know when to stand or when to sit? Do you know when to stand or when to sit? Now, this is an important concept, and it's important for us to think about, and it ties directly to Titus. Remember Paul's Gentile friend that he brought with him to Jerusalem to see how he would be treated, how people would respond to him. Well, when Titus shows up in that town, we see what happens in verses 1 through 5. Titus is not circumcised, and at the end of verse 5, he still is not circumcised. Now, that was not because there weren't people that wanted him to be circumcised. There were false brethren, Paul calls them, who snuck into this private meeting with James and Peter and John and tried to stir everybody up to make Titus be circumcised. There was opposition. It wasn't opposition from fellow believers. It was opposition from those that wanted to take people who were beginning to follow Christ and to make them something else. And Paul very emphatically says, he says, we gave that argument no weight. We did not listen to it. We did not follow it. We refused to circumcise Titus because of this idea that these false brothers were pushing. Now, when I read that and when I say that, there's a a part of all of us that wants to kind of cheer Paul on, right? We we love that. We love that thought. And and yet, even our cheers are a little louder from certain sections of the gallery, right? If you're a libertarian-type personality in person, you especially love the, the resiliency and the backbone of that moment, right? I mean, you want to fly the don't tread on me flag in this moment. 
and say, they, he did not give way, not an inch. We love that. But we need to keep reading the New Testament. And we need to ask the question, did Paul always respond this way on the issue of circumcision? And the answer to that is no. Paul had another friend, Timothy. Do these names sound familiar, Titus and Timothy? Why do those names sound familiar? Because they would ultimately get letters written to them that would be included in our New Testament. Timothy gets two letters written, First and Second Timothy. Titus gets a letter written. These were leaders in the early church, significant people, both from Gentile backgrounds. And in Timothy's case, Acts chapter 16 lets us know that the issue of circumcision played out differently in that case. In Acts 16, we find out that Paul, who is getting ready to embark on a second missionary journey and is building his team to go with him on that trip, invites Timothy to come. But Timothy, who had not been circumcised, Paul decides to circumcise. Now, why would he do such a thing? Well, Paul tells us. He decided to circumcise Timothy because in the region where they were getting ready to go, Timothy was well-known. People in that region knew him. They had a relationship with him. And because of that, they knew that his dad was a Gentile. And they, they by ascertained, they would say that he was not someone who had been circumcised. So as they're getting ready to go out on this trip, Paul has Timothy circumcised before they go. Now, again, some of you who are more prone to peace in the assembly, this is your little moment to cheer, but you're going to cheer a little quieter, right? It's the way, way it goes. But we have in this instance Paul circumcising Timothy and Paul not circumcising Titus. Now, that bugs us, doesn't it? Because we're a people who believe in absolute truth. So we want an absolute ethic. I believe in absolute truth. When, when God says it so, that's the way that it is. But what's fascinating to me is in Christian ethics, there is a category for people compromising, not on the truth of the gospel, but in their behavior for the sake of unity in the assembly. And that's what we see happening here. Now, let's see some details that help us understand this a little more. With Titus, the issue was people were sneaking in who were unbelievers who had ill motives. They were just the mob of society that had snuck in and wanted to put shackles on Christians and make them Jews. They had ill motives, and they were unbelievers who were up to no good. And what they were trying to say was that Timothy, or, or sorry, Titus needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. We might put it in maybe a, a broader category. He at least needed to be circumcised in order to really be spiritual. Paul was not going to let unbelievers bully him into attaching something else into a Jesus plus gospel. And he said to Titus, no circumcision. But with Timothy, what was the situation? Well, with Timothy, they're getting ready to go and visit churches. They're getting ready to go and revisit a number of the churches that were planted in the Galatian region. And as they were going to go back to those cities and, and visit those churches, they were going to be interacting with brothers and sisters in Christ, people who had a genuine interest and desire to follow God and to seek Him. 
And so Paul thought in that moment, I have a limited amount of time with these folks. Why would I take the limited amount of time that I have with them and have it be spent in distraction over the issue of circumcision? That will ultimately take us away from the mission and the purpose of this trip. And so he has Timothy circumcised in order to keep the mission pure and on point. You see how that plays out and why he would do that? Is it, is it inconsistent? Yeah, it's inconsistent in the sense that it's a different response in each setting. It was a sliding ethic. But is it consistent with the heart of God? Absolutely. Because of the purpose of the church and the mission that they were about and how important that ultimately was. Now, if this is the dynamic that we see play out in Scripture, the question then ought to become, how do we know how to apply that principle in our lives? Now, I want to just share a few perspectives on this to maybe help us take that principle and apply it to our lives today. What are some of the things that we have freedom to do or not do, but that ultimately we might choose to restrict our freedom for the sake of others? Well, one of them might be on the area of the consumption of alcohol. Can Christians drink alcohol? Now, I'm not talking about drinking to get drunk, and there's a whole other set of issues on that, but is it okay for Christians to drink alcohol at all? Well, just look in the Bible. You know what? In the very beginning of, of John's gospel, he has Jesus at a party where Jesus turns the water into wine. And so I don't think that what we have in in, in the Bible is a full prohibition of alcohol among Christians. But is it possible for Christians, especially Christians, as they gather together in a fellowship for the purpose of worshiping Jesus, that we would restrict that freedom for a greater purpose, to not be a distraction? And the answer to that, I think, is yes. An example of that is when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. You know, last week we celebrated the Lord's Supper. And we invited people to come forward and and grab a cup that had juice in it, not wine. Why did we have juice, not wine? Is it because we didn't have the freedom to have wine? Absolutely not. We could have had wine. But why did we choose to restrict that freedom for this point? To create the opportunity for more people to worship and not to have a distraction. In this particular context here at Wildwood, more people would have been walking out the door talking about the content of the juice then they would have been talking about the one we were remembering. And so we restrict that freedom to keep Jesus central. Are there other congregations that could do that differently? Yes. But in this context, we have deemed we will step away from that freedom for the purpose of keeping Jesus central. This is also true, by the way, as it relates to issues of politics. Can Christians delve into politics? I hope so. I love that fact. That we have people, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are, who are serving in office in our country, in our state, in our city. I, I love the fact that we have an opportunity in our country to vote. And we're able to express our politics that way. Or even to have conversations with people outside the context of the church to promote even a candidate that we might support in different fashion. But when we gather as a church family, we choose not to hold up candidates and say, this is our candidate, vote for them. Why? Do we have the freedom to do that? Yes. Why do we not do it? Because we want to stay on mission. We do not want to add the distraction. So we step away from areas of freedom. Because believe it or not, not everybody voted for the same person. 
But when we gather together, we got the same Savior if we embrace Jesus. And so we gather together under his name, not the name of a party, to lift up the name of Christ. And so those are a couple of areas. But I think it even could apply in the area of adherence to COVID protocols. You know, when we think about this issue, oftentimes the debate is around whether we have to or don't have to. Whether it's, you know, a mask is efficacious for stopping virus or anything like that, and we end up ending it in all these kinds of debates. I want to just box all that conversation up around the politics of it, and, and I want to box up for just a moment all of our even scientific thoughts. I know that I'm going to drive everyone bananas when I say that. But, but is there a reason why when we gather that we would still adhere to some kind of a protocol? I think the answer to that is yes. Why? Because we might step away from our preference in order to provide an opportunity for the most people to gather. It's just a, a matter or a principle. It's, it's why we do it. Now, I'm not trying to convince you of that perspective, but I'm telling you that's as I have processed this and thought about this, where I've ended up. And so when we think about these issues, we begin by taking our understanding and looking at it to see, does it stand up? And then after we look to see, does it stand up to Scripture, the second thing that we should do is we should have this category that our conviction at times we might sit down on instead of stand firm in for the sake of others, for the sake of keeping the focus on the person of Christ. We see that inside of this passage. But there's a third category that I think, a third point that I think it's important for us to see. And that third point is this. Do you stand together to love others? Do you stand together to love others? I love how Paul concludes these these verses, because as he is, is talking about his experience in Jerusalem, he actually talks about the, the forming of almost, you know, different movements inside of the one church, right? Jesus didn't come and form multiple bodies, but we have a recognition that that one body is going to look different in different rooms. In other words, it was never the, the mission of the church in the first century to get everybody in one room, but it was ultimately to get everybody connected to the one Savior. And we see that play out for us in Galatians 2. He says, he went there and he says, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted, Paul says, with the gospel to the uncircumcised or the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised or the Jews, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who wanted to be who, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. There was an understanding that the church was going to be bigger than any one room. And as they remembered that and as they took their eyes from down and in to up and out, they realized that they had a friend, a friend that was going to embrace the very same gospel, even if the traditional practices of their ministry might look a little different than it did in Jerusalem. They were willing to accept that and to shake hands and to have this, this moment of fellowship and connection in ministry. You know, friends, I've, I've found this to be true. The more we spend time looking down and in, 
the easier it is for us, us to have more enemies out there. Right? If we just look at our thoughts, our beliefs, our perspective, and that's what we're doing, ultimately we have tons of enemies, even enemies that also claim the name of Christ. But when Peter and James and John and Paul brought their eyes from down to up and they saw what the Lord was doing, they extend the right hand of fellowship and they, they understood that they had this friend and partner in ministry. And, you know, I've, I've seen this play out in, in our life as well. You know, in, in this city, there are a number of different churches and churches that, that do things differently than Wildwood in a number of ways. But when I get together with other pastors in town and we talk and we pray together and we agree upon the gospel together, I realize that we have these kinds of moments where we say, I understand the ministry that God has for you in this area of town among these people, and we've got this ministry here, you know, amen, praise, and glory. And the same thing happens when we talk to our missionaries in the field around the world. We have an agreement on the centrality of the gospel, even if it looks different in different places. We see that pattern develop at the very beginning of the early church. I spent a summer in Volgograd, Russia, doing ministry back in 1995. And when we were there, it was interesting. Our, our friends, as we were, there were very few Christians in that community, uh, we found a, a fellow missionary that had planted a church from a different denomination than ours. But they were our best friends in that town because we had the gospel in common. Friends, when we take our eyes and put them up and out, we find that we have friends in the name of Jesus together that we can partner with. Are we willing to come together to love others? Well, he continued talking, and he recounts how they ended their time. Paul says, they, they looked at me, they did not amend my message at all. They looked at my friend, they did not require that he be circumcised at all. But he says, they only asked us to remember one thing. What would you expect them to answer? Now, let's just pause for a moment. What would you expect people to answer today? They only asked us one thing, to make sure our end times theology was accurate. They only asked us to make sure that we used the right translation of the Scripture. God's Word, the English Standard Version, right? To make sure they practice baptism the exact same way that we do. No. That under the banner of the gospel, that is the most important thing. But there is one thing they did add to it, and it had nothing to do with theology. Well, it had something to do with theology and how it played out, but it was not primarily a belief. It was an action. He said, I asked, they, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that we were eager now, friends, I, I love this declaration because as we've been going through the book of Galatians and as we continue to go through Galatians, especially in the first several chapters, it's theology heavy. And it's possible for us to think that what Peter and James and John and Paul were doing was they were formulating a think tank just to come up with ideas and to write position papers and to have orthodox doctrine. Now, that's true. They did write papers, and they did have theology, and they did point us in the direction of orthodox doctrine. But that was not all that they did. They were planning churches that were impacting the lives of people and caring for them where they were and helping to care for their communities where they went 
and ultimately to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. When their eyes went from down and in to up and out, they realized that the application of the gospel message must also work up and out into their communities and into their fellowship. And Paul specifically remembers this moment where they said to remember the poor. Now, what was the context of this trip initially? Remember? The context was that there was a famine in Jerusalem. And so the church in Antioch took up a collection to help the poor in Jerusalem. It was this tangible need that would unite these two different churches as they came together to remember the poor and to love Christ and get the main things, the main things at the very outset. And friends, as we gather today, we need to remember that as well. If our theology makes us more hard towards people, if our theology makes us more angry, if our theology makes us more bitter, then we're reading our theology wrong. Our theology, rightly understood, ought to have us have a perspective that remembers the poor, the very thing that we are eager to do. Now, what does it look like to do that? I've talked a lot. I've got to end. I just want to provide a summary of some of the ways that remembering the poor uh, look like, according to Charles Spurgeon. He says, we remember the poor in prayer. That as we pray, we don't just pray for those who have everything. We remember those who have nothing. And we pray for them, for God to bless them and to care for them. Those that we pray for, then we tend to see. And as we see them, that we would engage in conversation. Sometimes one of the biggest things that happens in poverty is that it isolates people. We can be a solution to that without ever even giving a dollar. We'll get to that in a moment. But that we might be willing to engage in conversation and care for those that can provide nothing to us in return. And then the last thing is remember the poor and provisions of needs. As you are able and as the Lord prompts, not that you're the Savior to provide everything and not that everybody ends up with the same in their checking account at the end of the day, but as the Lord works in compassion through you that you meet a need that you see. Friends, this is the call of the church, of the first church, we see in Scripture, a church that had their understanding standing up to the scrutiny of the other followers of Christ. They understood when to stand firm and when to compromise for the sake of missional integrity. There was an understanding that they needed to stand together to love others. My desire, friends, that this would also be true of us as a congregation in the year ahead. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this truth and this, this book. Thank you so much that you have given us this letter that Paul wrote to his friends in Galatia. May, may we be a people um, who heed its call and follow its example, that we would always, always, always compare our convictions to your word, that we would stay resolute to those things and what we believe, but that as we live those things out, we would do so with compassion and compromise where necessary, standing firm where necessary, but also that we would just be loving and compassionate uh, to all. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.